Question number next. Why do some denominations or churches obey some Old Testament laws about how to dress or what to eat and some don't? What is the relationship between Old Testament law and Christians today? Or more specifically, as it was given to us, why is it that some denominations make their women wear dresses and long hair and can't wear shorts and the men must wear long sleeves to the elbow? So continuing this series that we've been in uh, since uh, January, um, this question comes down to a biblical interpretation of various Old Testament, New Testament passages, as well as the lens through which you view several theological concepts and the lens through which you view the, the church and how it's engaging the culture with the gospel. My prayer for us is when we are done today, we are further equipped to discuss this question with friends who ask us these kinds of questions. That's the whole goal of this series. As we've gotten questions from friends who aren't part of the crossing or maybe who are unchurched or lost and uh, questions of skeptics or questions of the curious and, and what does the Bible have to say about that? And the, the purpose of this teaching time is just to continue those conversations, not to, to be the final answer in these issues, but just to continue the conversation along and, and hopefully with whoever you're engaging in life with, if they have questions that are particular that we've answered or if you know, a year from now it comes up, you're like, hey, I remember someone teaching about that. Uh, I had a dear friend and, and sister in Christ uh, that came to know Jesus in the first church I pastored, and she sent me a text this week. She listens to the podcast, and she sent me a text that she uh, heard Kevin's sermon on science and faith and sent it to some friend, uh, family members of hers, sisters and brothers uh, back in California where she's from, because they have questions about that. And they struggle with that. So it's just one way that we're equipping you to help in- you to engage with people in your life who are far from God or who struggle in these things. Um, if you go into Corner Coffee and you run into Tara, Tara listens to all of our podcasts and she sometimes discusses some of these issues and you can know, hey, I can talk to Tara about this because she's listened to us teaching on this. That's our desire for the entire series. And we hope and pray this morning to see the beautiful relationship that exists between us and God through the gospel and his purpose for the church as we bear witness to him and obey him in the culture in which we live. That's a lot for one sermon, so let's ask for God's help. Father, we are thankful for who you are. We pray you would help us to see you today for who you are. And then we pray you would help us to see us realistically. We thank you that though you are holy and we are sinful, you love us and have made a way for us to know you. And so help us to see that as well. Do all the good work that you want to do in us today for the glory of Christ alone, we pray. Amen. I want to start today by just stating the reality of the position of churches who adopt dress codes or dietary rules from their perspective and then dive into why we don't hold that same position. As some of you know, there are particular churches, denominations who have Uh, Very specific uh, dress codes for their members. The UPC, United Pentecostal Denomination, for instance, refrains from makeup, jewelry, or cutting the hair of women, as well as modest clothing that covers as much skin as possible. Men also don't have facial hair 
uh, cut their hair, don't wear jewelry besides wedding rings, and also cover their skin. Obviously, there are exceptions within those churches and individuals, and there are, if you believe online sources, there are particular churches in that denomination that are trying to get away from that. Uh, you may know individuals who don't live like that, but we also know a lot of people who do. Sometimes it's alarming watching men play tennis in the middle of summer in jogging pants and long sleeves, as I witnessed when I was in college, and, and I just stood perplexed. Like, why would you do this? This is Louisiana. It is summertime. You're going to die. You really believe this conviction very strongly. And, and, and that's one thing we have to understand. If we listen to learn before we judge or scoff, then what we find is there are, these people have a, a very high view of Scripture who are very zealous to obey what they genuinely believe Scripture is teaching, which helps us build relationship by leaning in and seeking to understand and empathize rather than simply ridiculing, condemning, and scoffing. So ridiculous. Who would believe that? If we're created and called to love the Lord our God with all that we are, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to even love our enemies... If we're called and created to respect every single image bearer and give them honor and dignity simply because they're image bearers, if we're even to steward and care for all of creation, then don't you think the bare minimum when we come across people we don't agree with, who don't agree with us, is to lean in, empathize, seek to learn, and find value in in God's grace present even if we don't agree with them? rather than running to ridicule and scorn. A recent op-ed in the New York Times makes a case for our current age as a culture of contempt. He says, A noxious brew of anger and disgust, not contempt for other people's ideas, but the people too. Quoting philosopher author Schopenhauer, Contempt is the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another. The author of the article, David Brooks, has a book coming out entitled, Love Your Enemies. That sounds familiar. Subtitle, How Human Decency Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. So close to the gospel. To which we would say, human decency isn't enough. We need human transformation through the gospel. But it's the gospel alone is, is how and why we truly love our enemies and how we and why we don't treat others with contempt, and we see value and worth in all people, which will allow us to disagree, but not have contempt. And so while we don't agree with those interpretations of the Bible, we see value in a group of believers who have a high view of Scripture and are trying to obey it literally as best as they can in all of life. And so if you're engaging in conversations with people who believe this, and maybe it turns into an argument, at least you can value some of these things with them. I, I appreciate you, brother, for how you have such a high view of Scripture, and you really want to obey it. There are official documents passed by general assemblies, forbids wearing of jewelry or makeup or immodest clothing or women cutting their hair or men growing their hair long based on passages like 2 Kings 9.30. When Jehu came to Jezebel, Jezebel heard about it, so she painted her eyes, fixed her hair, and looked down from the window. Is there anything you want to do uh, according to Scriptures? You don't want to do anything Jezebel did. So Jezebel put on makeup. You don't want to put on makeup. Jeremiah 4.30, and you, devastated one, 
What are you doing that you dress yourself in scarlet, that you adorn yourself with gold jewelry, that you enhance your eyes with makeup? You beautify yourself for nothing. Your lovers reject you. They intend to take your life. Uh, Jeremiah, describing the, the nation of Israel in rebellion and sin against God, used this kind of language. It's obviously not something that a holy person would do, but a rebellious nation. So again, because they did that, you don't want to do that. Jumping to the New Testament, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 4, in the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry, but rather, rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Or 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 10. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess to worship God. Then you have a long passage in 1 Corinthians 11, which speaks to hair length on men and women, which we walked through last year as a church. The idea promoted in churches within that denomination, the interpretation is hair length and dress is also related to gender identity. So men must wear pants and short hair. Women must have long hair and dresses because we want to maintain the distinctions between men and women, which we can value something like that, maintaining distinctions between men and women, even if we don't agree with the interpretation of how you carry that out. Other groups throughout the history of the church have also felt that there is value in continuing to adhere to Old Testament dietary restrictions. God gave those dietary laws in the Old Testament, in their opinion, not only to maintain a distinction between his people and the pagan nations around which they live, but also as a better way to live, in their opinion. And these groups don't see where the New Testament has explicitly undone the dietary laws. The passages that seem to say that Jesus has come and to get rid of the dietary laws they would say refer to something else more spiritual than the actual laws about how you eat. And if you want to love Jesus by obeying his commands, as John 15, 10 tells us, then you should strive to obey as many of his commands as possible going back into the Old Testament as well. Now, not every group sees this as a means of salvation, but it is certainly viewed as a normal part of sanctification or a biblically accurate manifestation of holiness. So why don't we do that? As a crossing. I mean, these are people claiming to be Christians, drawing their authority from Scripture alone, teaching from the Scriptures. Why, why wouldn't we be in the same camp? Well, let's walk through at least four reasons taken together. It's important you see these together because there's no one argument to, 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 to rule these, four, uh, these positions out. But while we don't see these interpretations of the Bible as beneficial or helpful, all four reasons really need a sermon in and of themselves. So we're just scratching the surface. Hopefully, by God's Spirit, you'll dig deeper as you are led by Him. But number one, we don't hold to these interpretations because of our understanding of holiness. In that, holiness is not simply a list of rules to follow and align your life with, but holiness is a relationship to enjoy. So our understanding of holiness, it's a relationship to enjoy, not a list of rules. Now, the document from the particular branch of Pentecostal churches I referred to earlier is actually titled Holiness. It's a document approved in their General Assembly in 1995. Their understanding of holiness is this. There's a world system under the control of Satan and in opposition to God who looks like this. So we, to be God's people, need to look as much distinct from them as we possibly can. 
drawn from the holiness codes in Leviticus, where God gives his people tons of rules and regulations before they go into the land, promised them rules and regulations that they would uh, live out as God's people to make them distinct from the pagan nations. And all through Leviticus, you, you keep seeing this, this phrase show up. Uh, be holy because I am holy, God telling his people. I'm holy, I'm distinct and set apart, I'm other, unlike anything else, and you are my people, so you should be set apart and distinct, unlike anyone else. This idea is picked up on in places like 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all of your conduct. For it is written, quoting Leviticus, 19, uh, Leviticus 11, Be holy, because I am holy. Certainly this idea of holiness does at least contain the idea of morality. As God's people, morally, we live in a way that reflects God's standard of what is morally good, morally right, morally healthy, life-giving, and beneficial. This is setting us apart and in contrast to a way of sin and evil and what is morally wrong, not good, destructive, or hurtful. Not a blessing, but a curse. So holiness includes at least some sense of morality, but it, it, we would say it also goes much further than just morality. Because you can live a moral life, you can follow a set of rules, and you can do that for any number of reasons. Being faithful to your wife, your husband, being a good parent, working hard at your job, not lying but telling the truth, following the laws of society, eating well, exercising, being kind and considerate to others, not being a jerk. Universally, these things are considered good. You can be a good person and universally your life is going to go better. Your life is going to be more enjoyable if you're a good person and you're a good person to other people. You can have a good society built on those kind of people. And so your desire to be moral could simply be, I want to live a life that's better for me and better for the people that I care about. And you could do that. Because a moral life gives you the best shot at that. Holiness includes that idea, but it has to be more than that because you don't need God to live a moral life. You don't need God to live that kind of life. That is the essence of the religion of America today, moralistic therapeutic deism. Anyone can do this. But when God says, be holy for I am holy, he's also referring to a sense of belonging to him. Not just following rules. All through Leviticus, you see holiness referring to inanimate objects like tables and tents and bowls and cups and spoons and lampstands. Other items that were part of temple worship. Items that were called holy. Holiness has to be more than morality because if holiness were only morality, how could a table or a tent or a cup or a bowl or a spoon or a lampstand be morally good? Table, we were really behaving today. Good job. Cup, man, I'm proud of you. You're being so good. Doesn't make sense. The idea of holiness also meant it belongs to God and is used in service to God. So the cup, the table, the tent, the bowl, or whatever that was in someone's house wasn't holy until it was brought to the temple and to be used in service to God in the temple. 
Then it belonged to God and was used for him, set apart, holy for God. Holiness carries this idea of belonging. One commentator on the idea of holiness says this, For belonging to God, living on his terms, reserving ourselves for him, delighting in him, obeying him, honoring him, these are more fundamental than the specifics of obedience that we label as morality. So what makes us holy? We belong to God. Not just that we are moral, but we belong to God, which makes how we live more of an issue of the heart than what rules we follow. Tim Kelly gives a great illustration of this. Suppose you have a single mother, hypothetically, who's raising a son. And she instills in this son from early in, age, early in his age, I want you to do three things, son. I want you to work hard. I want you to tell the truth. I want you to take care of the poor. And she's just pounding this message in his head all the time he's growing up. And she's working hard as a single mom to provide for him. Because she wants to give him the best start in life. So she's working hard and saving money so that when he goes to college, he doesn't have any debt when he gets out of college. He can go get a job and, and do these three things that she's taught him. Work hard. Don't, don't lie. Tell the truth and take care of the poor. He gets to college graduation. He has a job across the country. And he looks at his mom and he says, Mom, you've taught me well. I'm ready to move to this city. I'm ready to work hard. I'm ready to continue to tell the truth. I'm ready to take care of the poor. But I'm going to be so busy doing those things, I'm not really going to have time for a relationship with you anymore. Maybe I'll send a Christmas card or call you every now and then, but I'm not really going to be able to visit. Universally, he's living a morally good life, doing things that all cultures would say are good things, and being a blessing to that culture in which he lives. But there's something that is sick to us about someone who would do something like that because it's devoid of a loving relationship. It's just following rules, being a good person. Another way to see it, the love relationship I have with Jennifer and my five kids have a hold on me, a claim on my life because I belong to them that I can't just live any way I want. It's not the kingdom of Jared I show up at, at the house after work. Well, I don't know what y'all got going on, but I'm going to watch Netflix for the next eight hours. Hope you're okay with that. We, we've got this much money. I, I'm just going to spend as much of it as I want on myself. So see y'all later. Because I belong to them in this love relationship, I can't live any way I want. Because of that relationship. So there are sinful things I don't do. And there are good things I choose to do. Even when I don't want to do them. And when I fail at doing the good things. I come back to them and say. I am so sorry. Please forgive me. Because I belong to them. And that. It's not because Jennifer gave me a list of rules to follow. When we got married. Here's the things you, you better do if you're going to be a good husband. And she pulls them out every now and then. Unspoken list, maybe. Or the kids got together and said, all right, here's the things dad's got to do to be a good dad. No, that doesn't exist. It's because I belong to them and they belong to me in this love relationship. That drives everything that we do that is good and all the sin that we avoid. In a much greater way in our relationship with God, we are not 
on our own. We have been bought with a price. We belong to God. And the way we live our life and the good things that we do and the sinful things we don't do aren't because we're just checking off a list of rules and regulations. But they flow from the love relationship we share with God who made us, saved us, and gave his life for us. And now we are alive in Christ Jesus. Creating a list of rules to follow doesn't make us holy. We are holy because we belong to him. And the reason we belong to a holy God isn't because we follow the rules, but it's because Jesus followed the rules. And we're trusting in Jesus for our right standing with God. His performance, not our performance. So keep this idea of holiness in your mind, being a a belonging to God, a love relationship with God, not just following rules and regulations. The second leg in our position is related to how we see the Old Testament. So our understanding of the Old Testament, the fact that the Old Testament has been fulfilled by Jesus and that reality becomes the lens through which we see the Old Testament. So Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament and he affects how we see the Old Testament. The Old Testament is centered around the idea the Messiah is coming. The promised one first given in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, all through the Old Testament, it's he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. For us to live today as though he hadn't come would be out of character with the entire Old Testament. They would be like, the writers of the Old Testament are like, what are you doing? You mean he's come and you're still doing some of the things that we talked about back then? He's come, enjoy him, experience him. His life was the perfect uh, fulfillment of Old Testament righteousness. And at the end of his life, he gave it in the final sacrifice. No more animal sacrifices. He was the ultimate substitute in our place. Being buried, rising from the dead, proving everything he did was good and true. This reality of the gospel changes everything. So we don't sacrifice animals anymore, for instance. If we ever offer that as a suggestion as, as leaders in this church, Go find another church or find another leader. You have permission to do that. Just take us out and send us somewhere. God's people are no longer confined to one ethnicity as Israelites, as they were in the Old Testament. We've been sent to make disciples of all ethnicities to see God's family made up of all nations, tribes, languages, and peoples. As a church, God's people, we're now indwelt with the Holy Spirit all the time. Instead of in the Old Testament era, the Holy Spirit would come on people, fill them for a specific task, and then the Holy Spirit could leave. Jesus himself referred to his relationship with the Old Testament, Matthew 5, 17. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Fulfill being this idea of filling up, to give the, the law its full and intended meaning and understanding, which he, he does throughout the rest of that passage in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. You Jews and Pharisees, Jesus was saying, you have understood the law in this way, but I'm here as a new authority, not standing on the authority of the Old Testament alone, but I am a new authority. You've heard that it said, he said said to them, but I say to you, nobody did that in the first century. A new authority, ultimately what he's doing is exposing their need for a heart change. You think this is what the law said, but you've missed it. Now I'm interpreting it for you in a new way. They were so hung up on external righteousness as personified in the Pharisees. Jesus says in verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. This was jaw-dropping shocking to the Jews in the first century. 
There was no one more righteous than the Pharisees. And you're telling me, I've got to be more righteous than them. It'd be like, you have to jump higher than Zion Williamson to get into the kingdom of heaven. This group right here. I'm out. I can't jump higher than that guy. You have to play basketball better than Michael Jordan to get into the kingdom of heaven. You have to run faster than Usain Bolt to get in the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's how shocking it was. It's impossible. What am I going to do? This is what Jesus is saying to them. No one obeyed it better than them. Everyone knew that. But Jesus says it's not enough. External righteousness isn't enough. We need new hearts. So Jesus changed how we saw the Old Testament. You think you haven't committed adultery because you haven't slept with someone. But I say to you, if you've lusted after someone in your heart, you've committed adultery. You think you haven't committed a murder because you haven't killed someone. But I say to you, if you hate your brother in your heart, you've killed them. All intended to drive us to our reality of our sinfulness and that we need new hearts. Now, the moral code remains and Jesus intensifies it. But the regulations governing the sacrificial system and how the people lived as a nation have changed. Because God's people are no longer a geopolitical location of one ethnicity among, uh, uh, in one place in the world, but they are uh, many ethnicities among all nations everywhere. Sometimes the church is open like we are in America. We have freedom to assemble and freedom to worship. And sometimes the church is very secret because those governments won't allow that. But the church is everywhere among all people, at least we're moving in that direction, desiring that. So we believe passages in the New Testament like Hebrews 13, 9, don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be established by grace and not by food regulations, since those who observe them have not benefited. And passages like Colossians 2, 16 and 17, therefore don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of festival or new moon or Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come The substance is Christ. These passages give us freedom in Christ from Old Testament civil and religious law. Moral code still in place. But the civil and the religious way that they had to live because of who they were in that place and time are different. We are free to view the shadows, the Old Testament regulations, in light of the fact that Christ has come. We have the true reality. So we don't have to hold on to the shadows as law anymore because we have the substance. There's much more to discuss in understanding the Old Testament for today. That's, again, long conversation. How do we, what about this passage? What about that passage? What's often done in our culture is we just take verses that sound good and we rip in our context and we put them on pillows and afghans and kitty cat sweaters and we think we understand the Old Testament. But you have to understand it in the context in which it's given. And I can promise you, if you go up to ask anyone what Jeremiah 29 11 says, or what's the context of Jeremiah 29 11, most people don't know, which is also a great open door for conversation in our culture. When you see the coffee cup or the afghan or the throw pillow or the, the cat wearing a sweater with it on there, whatever. There's so much more in this discussion. It's just a very general overview. The overarching idea is this. Jesus has changed how we view Old Testament law. While the moral code remains, certain aspects of the Mosaic law were given to the nation of Israel to help them live as God's people in that time and place to make them distinct. God's people are no longer in that time and place. We're among all peoples. 
So living distinctly now looks different. In fact, striving to adhere to these regulations can become more of a hindrance in helping us accomplish our mission to make disciples of Jesus. And that brings us to the third leg of the argument, our understanding of our mission. So our understanding of holiness, our understanding of the Old Testament, our understanding of our mission. To reach our culture with the gospel, we want to minimize obstacles other than the gospel itself. We don't have dress codes. We don't abide by dietary laws because of how we understand our mission as a church. 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, Paul says, I've made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became the weak. In order to win the weak, I have become all things to all people, so that I may by every possible means save some. And now I do all of this because of the gospel, so I may share in the blessings. The church in every culture should strive as much as possible. And we recognize it's not 100% possible. No way to 100% do this. But as much as possible to remove any obstacle other than the gospel. So that it is the gospel alone that's calling people to life. And it is the gospel alone they are walking away from to death. It is the gospel alone that offends, not anything else we've elevated. And it is the gospel alone that saves. That's, that's what we strive to do as a church. And, and certainly, if we examine ourselves, there's room to grow in that. We don't want to put anything or anyone else close to the person and work of Jesus. He is Christianity. He alone is who we're calling you to follow. Everything else can be worked out and figured out. But he is non-negotiable. And we want to do everything we can to not let anything else become the main thing. Now, this doesn't mean that we just dismiss New Testament passages that we read earlier for women to dress or appear in certain ways as, well, those were relevant to the church then, culturally beneficial to them, but we live in a different culture, so we don't, even have, to, we don't have to read those passages. You don't just dismiss passages of Scripture because you've deemed them not culturally relevant. We, we examine, we dig into those passages. Okay, what did it mean in that culture, in that context? What are the universal principles that, that were driving that instruction by Paul and by Peter? And now what does it look like for us to live that out today in our culture and context? You have to dig in and examine and not dismiss. The principle still remains. There is a place for women and men to dress or appear in a way that makes much of the character of God being formed inside of us rather than just how God's made us physically attractive. I mean, sometimes you can't, you can't hide beauty, right? This is just for all to see. I could wear a hat, but I don't. You just let it shine forth. More of God's character coming out of me, right? We want people drawn to God alive in us most. But that doesn't mean we have to adopt dress codes that make us so vastly different from our culture that it's hard to build a bridge to people to get to the gospel. Again, much longer conversation for another sermon, but in, in the same way, gender distinctions matter to God, and our lives should reflect that in significant ways as well. So we have conversations about how do we uphold the fact that God has made men men and women women? How do we value that? And then how do we lean in and love and empathize with those who struggle with that? Even if you think it's ridiculous, that's where they're at. So don't just put a wall because we can't handle it. 
We want to build a bridge because that's what Jesus would have done. Build a bridge of empathy, sympathy, and compassion. Hey, tell me about this struggle. I want to understand it as you understand it. And I want to love you as God loves you and help you see the gospel as much as I need the gospel. In our mission to reach our culture with the gospel, we have to do all we can, as Paul said, to relate and contextualize so we get a hearing for the gospel. And guys, the reality is the more diverse a church is, the more that actually happens. Like if you could imagine that you've never been in a church before, never been in a worship gathering like this, and you walk into one, or if you walk into one you've never been in, sometimes we do this. You start looking around, you start assessing and seeing similarities. And you begin to, to, to say to yourself, you know, or think to yourself, what's strong these people? Oh, this is a church full of young families. They got kids everywhere. It means everybody's tired. Nobody has any money or time. Or this, is a, this is a church of older people. So everybody's talking about what hurts and when their next doctor's appointment is and what's going on on Fox News and CNN or whatever. Or this is a church of, uh, of everyone's white or everyone's black or everyone's Hispanic or everyone's Asian. Or they're from the same family in a rural community, maybe. They have a lot of the same last names. They're all related biologically. Or you're in a, in a city neighborhood. They all shop in the same stores or their kids go to the same school. This is what draws this group of people together. Or women are wearing no makeup and jewelry and they have all long hair. Or the men are not wearing any jewelry as well and they don't, nobody has a beard and their hair's all high and tight and so forth. Maybe they're talking about this special diet that they all live by, these rules of life that they adhere to and celebrate these festivals that nobody else I know celebrates. That's what they have in common. But the more diverse that we are, the more people walk into our worship gathering and they're like, I don't know. I don't know why these people are together. Because I can't define this group of people by any of the ways that the world defines them. Then we can say, it's Jesus. This is the only thing that makes us all one. Because he's the main thing. And we can be drastically diverse in all the other ways that the world uses to categorize us. There's no explanation other than him. Almost everything else is secondary if we make him the main thing or not important at all. And in communities that make much of dress and food, it's really hard for that not to become the main thing. It's really hard. If churches knowingly and willingly make those things the main thing, then we have a different problem on our hands. Because if you add to the gospel, you corrupt the gospel and you have no gospel. That's a whole different conversation. And that brings us to our last leg, and that's our grasp of justification. As humans, uh, we are only and always right with God through Jesus and his work for us. We are only and always right with God through Jesus and his work for us. As humans separated from God, we all love easy paths back to God. And even if a church like ours, we preach justification by faith alone in Jesus, only Jesus and his work make us right with God, it is super easy for us to default back into things that, that we think make us right with God, or at least make us feel like we're right with God. Good things sometimes. What happens is we elevate these other things that make us feel right with God and we become self-righteous and prideful because we're doing great at them. It's our list after all. It's my list. I'm doing better at my list than anybody else is doing at my list. And we're losing the fact that it's Jesus alone as the basis of our standing with God and he alone did what was necessary. 
Churches in, uh, certainly in churches that make much of appearance and dietary laws, it's seemingly easier for this culture of self-righteousness to happen because those rules are kind of easy to follow and, and seemingly obvious. I mean, it's not hard to, to dress a certain way or to eat certain foods. But it also happens in churches like the crossing. We just have a different list. But in our heart, we know what makes us feel superior and better than others. In our hearts, we know what makes us feel right with God because of what we know or what we do or where we're most prone to base our justification with God other than Jesus and his work. In fact, for some, in a topic like this, it could be our freedom from those rules. Ha, look how free I am. I don't have to dress like that. I can eat bacon. And God loves me all the time. Loves me more the more bacon I eat. Flaunt it in front of other people who don't. And when we do that, we've fallen into the same trap of self-justification, self-righteousness, and misplaced our basis of what makes us right with God. And guys, we all do it all the time. Like praying now for the Spirit to expose this in our hearts where we tend to do it. On the basis of what knowledge we have or because of what behavior we do. Like, we're here today. It's my third Sunday in a row to be here. Where are they at? Mm-hmm. I feel much better about my standing with God because I'm here every Sunday than those people who just pop in every now and then. RMC, man, RMC's killing it. Way better than those other MCs. RMC does a better job as family. They do a better job of mission. We do a better job as family. Our jo- RMC does a better job as mission. They do a better job as family. We're better at engaging in our, our city. Our DNA... It's the best DNA in the crossing. We meet every week. Not only every week, we actually talk to the people in the coffee shop about Jesus when we meet. Look at us. We, sh- we feel so good about ourselves. We feel so right with God. I'm, I can articulate the gospel better than anybody. Four G's. You ready? Boom, 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 boom. Nobody is more woke than I am. I read more books and watch more YouTube videos than anybody else, and I can talk about that better than anybody else. I'm, I'm more musical. People get excited when they see me on stage. People get excited when they see me walk up to preach because I'm, I'm the best teacher. I'm the best singer. I'm the best musician. I've got the best Instagram feed in The Crossing. I'm doing a better job as a parent. I've got the healthiest marriage. Not only is our marriage healthier, but our sex life is way better than all the other marriages in the Crossing Church. I'm, I don't know, but I'm sure of it, right? We all do it, guys. It's just different what's on your list. There's all things that we are prone to put on our list that make us feel right with God or feel like we're right with God because we're killing it. And in all of that, we lose Jesus alone as our justification before God. And we become marked by arrogance and pride and self-righteousness. And what we all need is a constant reminder that it's Jesus alone. Not how we dress, not what we eat or anything else we put on the list. Jesus alone that makes us right and accepted by God And nothing we ever do changes that. Nothing. 
Nothing makes you closer to God or brings you further away from God than Jesus alone. If you're in him and he is in you. I'm going to close by reading a quote from a book that's been for my good that I've been walking through this year. Richard Lovelace's Dynamics of Spiritual Life. Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Many have so light an apprehension of God's holiness and of the extent and guilt of their sin that consciously they see little need for justification. Although below the surface, their lives are deeply guilt-ridden and insecure. Many others have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine, but in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for justification, drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscience, willful disobedience. Few know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon Luther's platform. You are accepted. By looking outward in faith and claiming the holy alien righteousness of Christ as the only ground for acceptance, relaxing in that quality of trust that will produce increasing sanctification as faith is active in love and gratitude. In order for a pure and lasting work of spiritual renewal to take place within the church, multitudes within it must be led to build their lives on this foundation. This means that they must be conducted into the light of a full conscious awareness of God's holiness, the depth of their sin, and the sufficiency of the atoning work of Christ for their acceptance with God, not just at the onset of their Christian lives, but in every succeeding day. He goes on to say that failure to do this will lead to a Christian life filled with anxiety, pride, sensuality, and all forms of unconscious despair. Jesus and his gospel alone make us right with God. Believing that, basing all of our life now and forever on that reality is not just the door that leads into Christianity, but it is the air we breathe constantly. Reminding ourselves. There's never any patting ourselves on the back because every good thing we can do is because of Jesus. And even when we do the good things, it doesn't make us more right with God. And we don't fall into despair because we blow it. Because again, Jesus keeps us right with God. As one guy told us recently and encouraged us to think about, we start every day at the top of the ladder as close to God as you can get. You don't work your way to get to the ladder. You start the day at the top of the ladder because of Jesus. He's amazing. We're sinful. He's not. And he gives us that right standing. We are far more sinful than we can possibly imagine. God is far more holy and righteous than we can possibly comprehend. And yet in love through Jesus, we are far more accepted than we could ever dare to hope or dream. Only accepted by God through Jesus. Yet always accepted by God through Jesus. And nothing changes that. To experience all that Jesus has for us, this has to be how we live. It's the only way there. That keeps us from being self-righteous in our freedom from dress and dietary rules 
and it becomes a message of freedom we can take to our super religious culture in which we live. But they're only going to see the value as they see us enjoying Jesus and what he gives us before God. As the musical worship team comes back up, I want to take a few minutes just of silence to allow the Spirit to speak and for you to listen. And then I want to pray before we sing that we would hear whatever the Spirit and the Word have said to you, we would hear, repent, believe, and obey by the power of the Spirit of God in us. Holy God, we are so sinful. In your presence, we are undone. But we are grateful you have made a way back to atone for our sins and to make us right with you through Jesus and his perfect work. Let that settle deeply in the hearts of everyone here. And if for the first time, if for the first time that that individual would realize that today is the day of their salvation. and You have made them alive in Christ Jesus and they're now a new person. But for everyone here, may it be fresh. May it be fresh. And may our hearts feel it as though we haven't felt it in a long time. And it drive everything that we do. Do this work, Spirit of God, for the glory of Christ among your people in your city. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.